Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hey, grab a seat, everybody. Welcome to Crossroads this morning. We are in week two of our series on the Lord's Prayer. And last week, we looked at some pretty specific, tangible words to describe how we prayed. We said, we're going to start with this idea of our Father who's in heaven and hallowed be his name. Last week, we really talked about the tone with which we talk to God. When we pray, what does it sound like? Why do we pray in certain ways? What does it matter, the words we use or the tone we use? And what Jesus said last week was, he said, hey, for the first time, let me define prayer differently than you think. It's not praying or talking to a a far-off deity praying in community to a God that's like your father, this intimate relationship. And he said, you can have confidence because it's your dad. So don't get nervous when you pray. Don't feel like he doesn't listen. But instead have confidence like you would if you're walking into your dad's bedroom saying, I need help and your dad is good and loves you. Have confidence when you pray, but then hallow his name, but don't make the mistake of making God common. We are confident prayers without making the God like us or common. It's this beautiful tension that we hold when we pray to God. And this week, we are looking at a couple different words that aren't as tangible as Father. We're looking at words like kingdom and will and heaven, which are very kind of philosophical and ethereal. And our tension today is going to be how does the philosophical and the ethereal impact the day-to-day? How does the idea of kingdom or will impact Monday, you know? And I think that when you unpack it, kind of the way we think about abstract principles impacts our day-to-day, you know, good bit. So, for example, you know, kiddo's five months old, and my wife and I had the conversation before she was born that we are going to be a parent-led household, not a baby-led household, right? And people looked at me like, okay. (laughs) And and, and literally, we said we want to... We want to do things like go places and travel, and we are not going to be held hostage to a feeding schedule-ish, you know? And we said we want to be a a parent-led house, and what that looks like for us is flexibility. And so when we say we want to be a parent-led house, this philosophical bent towards we're, you know, going to do our lives still and not go and hide for six months, what we meant was little things, like we give ourselves the freedom to feed her every four and a half hours, not three hours on the dot. So yesterday, for example, right? Yesterday, we're sitting around, and it had been about two hours, two and a half since she fed, and, and, and I said, man, I really want to get to Costco today because I'm a parent now, that should come with the delivery experience, but you have to go buy that membership separately. So I said, I'm going to go to Costco. And my wife said, I've never been. I said, oh my gosh. And so we said, you want to you go? And she said, well, the baby needs to eat. I said, yeah, we'll be fine because we're a parent-led household. Let's be flexible. So we loaded up the car and we drove to Costco, okay? Let me tell you guys something. I don't know if you've been to a third world country, but the, the closest thing I've seen to it is Costco on a Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl, <laughs> right? Let me, let me tell you how chaotic it was. If you weren't careful and you were anywhere around a free sample section when they put out the meatballs, you got trampled, everybody. I mean, it was every man for himself. And the whole time, amidst all that chaos, amidst the people and the carts and the yelling and the sirens and the Costco-ness, my kid's just chilling, you know? 
Like just hanging out. Do you know why? Because we've instilled a principle of flexibility that looks like, yeah, man, we'll get there when we get there. No, I was so proud yesterday. But we said as a, as a family, we're going to be a flexible family. So she waited four and a half hours. We got home and then she ate. And I know what you're thinking. Charlie, you just got lucky. This has nothing to do with you being a good parent. I know that, but I'm going to tell this to myself for a while. All right? Perception's reality, everybody. Okay? So we got home and she ate and life was good. Today we're talking about some pretty abstract principles like kingdom and will and heaven. And my goal, hopefully our goal, is to talk about how these abstract principles that maybe aren't as tangible as father impact our day-to-day with Jesus. And our goal here at Crossroads every week, we have two of them on Sunday mornings. We want to know more about God because we believe that we can study God all of our lives and never exhaust the knowledge of who God is because he's bigger and better than us. And that's a good thing. And two, we want to experience God in worship because God made us with a mind and then he made us with emotions. And he says, hey, both of those things are beautiful and good. And so we seek after both those things. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to pray together. And why we do this is because we're not creating a culture of critics, but rather we believe when we gather together, the Holy Spirit does a work in and through his scriptures. I believe that God's going to talk to you today through his word. In order to do that, you're just not going to rate me on how funny I am, I hope, but you're going to actually ask God as we learn together what he's trying to teach you in your world for your life as we follow Jesus together. And then I'm going to ask that you pray for me for a couple seconds that I don't embarrass myself for the kingdom too, too much this morning. Okay, so let's pray. God, I'm thankful for today and the opportunity we have to just gather together and open your word, <laughs> to talk through the nature of prayer and, and some of the principles that, that you've taught us about and how they affect our tomorrow. So I pray today that you lead us and you teach us and you guide us. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you take a couple seconds and just pray that the Spirit might lead and teach you today as you open the Word of God. I also ask that you pray for me, that my words might be edifying and uplifting and encouraging, and that it might lead us into the presence of God as we learn about the character of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You got a Bible? We are in Matthew 6. That's where the Lord's Prayer is found. This week our text is verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That idea of kingdom is pretty prevalent throughout the New Testament. In the Gospels alone, that word kingdom, mostly said by Jesus, is found 126 times. But it's not a term that we use all the time anymore. You don't call your house a kingdom. You don't build a moat, I hope, around your house. We don't use the feudalism expression of territory anymore. You don't have a kingdom. But, probably like the Jews in the first century, I think when I think kingdom, I think of physical space and place. When I think kingdom, I think of feudalism. I think of moats and drawbridges, and this is the geographical area from which I control. I think of the UK. I think of a space and a time and a place. And that's exactly probably what the disciples thought when they heard the word kingdom. They thought it's a physical place that God is taking back for us. When he said things like, I came to bring my kingdom, they thought, fantastic, we get Jerusalem back. They thought literally the ground I'm standing on will be God's ground because he's taking a kingdom and kingdom always means physical space. They said, we are going to get back property here. And so kingdom's influence only extends as far as the space that you're in. 
For, for example, growing up, I think we've all seen it and lived out the idea of kingdom this way. Growing up, my mom uh, did not love for me to have a ton of processed foods, especially sugars, you know, because one, she knew me, and two, if she knew that if she gave me any more sugar, she would probably never want to have other kids. And so she said, hey, you could not have much of all the things that your friends are eating, but once a month, I don't know if you guys remember this, it's going to date me, we used to get this magazine in the mail, and my love for food has always been there, everybody, okay? And we got this magazine in the mail from the Schwann's man. You guys know what the Schwann's man's all about? Oh, come on, right? So this catalog of food, and you'd go through, and you could order all this stuff, this bad-for-you stuff, and they would bring it to your door, right? It was amazing. It was all this prepackaged, full-of-sugar food, and my mom would say, you can pick one thing, one thing. Circle one thing. And I'd say, but there are so many good things. And she'd say one thing, right? And I'd say, fine. So I would circle one, and my brother would circle one, and my little brother would circle one. And that's how we rocked in the ride in our household all growing up, you know? My buddy Aaron, he was my best friend. His mom was different than mine. His mom hated cooking, hated it. And so she thought the swans man was a grace of God, right? As much prepackaged, sugar-filled food as possible, God is good, amen. And so their pantry was chock full of things that I could not eat when I was in my house. And his mom said, hey, Charlie, my house is your house. So anytime you want to, you stop in and just go into the pantry. And I said, are, are you serious? She said, anytime. She gave me a key to their house. And so in high school, I'm not kidding. I would be driving from my school to my house. I would stop off at Aaron's house. I'd open the door. I'd say, hey, Donna. I'd go to the pantry, grab a box of something, and get back in my car and drive home, right? And why it was okay was because not my parents' house. What can they do? What can they say? You know, that would get me in trouble later on. But that's another story, all right? So it's this idea that we've always known that kingdom is the influence exerted over a specific space, a specific territory. And the Jews thought the same way. So when Jesus says, I've come to bring my kingdom, they thought, cool, we're going to give back the land that we lost to the Romans. But see, that's not what the scripture says all the way about kingdom. That's not what Jesus means when he prays kingdom. And before we go too far into what Jesus means, we have to talk about the kingdom that we're in now. Ephesians 2 puts it like this. Although you were, talking about people, mankind overall, although you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, talking about Satan, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, what he's doing in Ephesians is drawing out what influence we're under on this physical space, on this earth. He says, when you're in the earth, the kingdom of this earth is not the Lord's. It is controlled by Satan because sin entered. And we made that decision. Romans 1 talks about it. Romans 1, it says in 24 to 26, therefore... God gave them, mankind, over to the desires of their hearts. He gave them over to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the, creator, the creation rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God handed them over to dishonorable passions. The story the scripture lays out is the world we live in right now is under the influence of evil because sin exists. The story the Bible paints is that because we chose it, our world is broken. The story the Bible paints is that the kingdom of this world is Satan's. But here's the tension. Is if kingdom is a physical space, and anytime I'm in this world, I'm impacted by the influence of Satan, Jesus comes and says something else. 
Jesus says when he gets on the scene in Mark chapter 1, you'll see it in Matthew 4, 2. He says, now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, for the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He says to some Pharisees about a year and a half later in Luke 17, for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst. So, so if kingdom, if you're a Jew, if you're you and me, and you think kingdom is representative of physical territory and space that's defined by moats and walls and things, and we understand that the physical space that we inhabit now, this world is under the influence, the kingdom of Satan, then how can Jesus step into this same space on this same ground and look at his people and say, this is my kingdom, not yours? How can Jesus step on that ground, look at these people that are sitting in this space on the soil controlled by Satan and say, join my kingdom. It's here, it's here right now, and it looks like me. And what we see in the scriptures is this idea. What Jesus tries to do is he pushes his people beyond seeing kingdom as a physical space, but seeing kingdom as an area of influence wherever they might find themselves. It's bigger than space and place, it's influence. So Jesus is saying that just because the influence of this world is evil right here and right now, I have come to regain my influence over the evil and dark spaces. What he's saying is that the kingdom of God is the spaces where the influence of God dominates. What he's saying is the kingdom of God can be here because God's influence is here. It's beyond, it's more than just physical space. And it's been the story of God from the beginning. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 20, 22, and they said, what's the most important law? And he said, hey, this is what it should be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your mind. What God has been saying from the very beginning is that I want all of you wherever you are. Your allegiance for me, your influence of me in your life doesn't change just because you go somewhere else, you know? It doesn't matter where you are. My influence on you carries with you wherever you might go. So whether you're in this space on a Sunday morning, work tomorrow morning, home tomorrow night or this afternoon, wherever you're at for the Super Bowl, he's saying the kingdom of God isn't defined by a space. It's the influence of God in your life that you take with you wherever you go. So instead of being like the pantry where I can get all the ho-hos I want and be okay with it, it's like, um, let's keep the food analogy going, it's like, it's a new year. I don't know how many of you do the fad diets, right? You know, the whole 30. I tried that once because my wife's allergic to, to most flavors. And so um, <laughs> lot, lots of things, gluten, soy, dairy. And so she can't eat a lot of these things. She said, let's do the whole 30 together. And I think we made it 12 to 15 days. And I said, it's our marriage or it's the diet, <laughs> right? And we chose our marriage. So um, it's like the Whole30 when you go out to a restaurant with somebody on the Whole30 diet now because it's the new year and swimsuit season is coming and everybody's concerned about it and then you sit down to eat and you look at the menu and you order the worst thing for you on the menu. Do you know why? Because it tastes the best, everybody, okay? And then the person next to you orders like a quinoa wrap with no carbs or something, you know? And you think to yourself, why are you making me feel bad about me, you know? <laughs> But more importantly, what it's showing in that moment is that the influence of their diet goes with them wherever they go, whether it's in the middle of Chick-fil-A or the middle of Wendy's or the middle of wherever. It's the idea that the influence of God isn't the space you're in, but the influence of God is merely how much we listen to the ways and presence of Jesus in our world. And Jesus says, even though you find yourself in a broken world, you can still be in my kingdom. It's this beautiful picture that he paints that you are not defined by the places you're at. You're defined by how much Jesus is influencing your life. 
There's a quote by Tim Keller I like. He said, it's asking God to extend his royal power over every part of our lives, emotions, desires, thoughts, and commitments. There's an Anglican theologian in Australia, and I love how he defines kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule, wherever you might find yourself. So then we're going to say the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule, his full influence in our world. So when God says, pray this way, when Jesus says, pray this way, when he says, pray your kingdom come, what he's asking you to pray for is that his influence might be more and more felt in the lives of his people, that we might see his influence regardless of space or place in our world. He's saying, may your influence grow. But here's the hard part, is we look around us and we recognize that it's not fully felt yet. This is the part that we see Jesus walking and doing miracles, but at the same time, we see people hurting. This is the part where we see God wanting all people to be holy and, and happy and, and, and healthy and, and blessed, but at the same time, we know people that are sick and dying. It's the tension of if God's influence wants to be here. Why isn't it fully here yet? Because people still don't choose the influence of Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 4 puts it like this, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so they would not see the light of the glorious gospel. Augustine says, God is reigning now, but just as light is absent to those refusing to open their eyes, so it's possible to refuse God's rule. It's this idea that God's influence is available, but it's not, but everybody doesn't choose it. It's this idea that we're not fully influenced by God yet as a people, as a culture, as a world. So there's this tension of if God is good, as influence is good, why do we see bad things? It, it's the already but not yetness of the kingdom of God. When he came and said, I'm starting it now, build it with me, but we're not quite there yet. It's laid out so well in Romans 8. If you've ever read it before, Romans 8, Paul's talking and he's talking about the tension between who I want to be, who I want to be in Jesus, but I'm not always there yet, but I really want to be this person, but I fall short quite a bit. Why does this tension exist? And he says, for I consider that our present sufferings can't even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed in us. He's saying there is a place and a time and a space where God's influence is fully felt. And then I love this next part. He says that for, for creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because God, it was God who subjected it in the hope that creation itself would also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. A couple years ago, I was at a conference in Boston. It's like the Christian version of TED. And I was at this, uh, like a leadership kind of breakout session on how to lead, you know, churches and, and organs at nonprofits. And the night before that session, there was an earthquake in Nepal. This is April of 2015. It was 7.8 on the Richter scale, and it killed about 9,000 people in a country that's poor anyway, you know? <laughs> and so we got together with these leaders the next morning, and we asked the question, everybody would ask, why does this happen? I'm okay if I understand where evil comes from. Like, like, I'm okay if you punch a cop in the face and then go to jail. Like, I get that. I get where your bad things came from. It's harder for me when I see bad things and I can't attribute a cause, like earthquakes or tsunamis. 
It's harder for me when I see good people get sick and die. It's harder for me when I can't attribute a cause to the evil that happens all around me. What I love about this verse is it says that even creation groans at redemption. What it means is so often because we're Western individual Christians, we've made our conversation about God's kingdom and heaven and hell just about you and your soul. And let me tell you, it's so much bigger than that. The Bible paints this picture that God is actually redeeming all things, not just you. And that's a beautiful thing, by the way. And so when I get the question, hey, if God is good, why did he cause the earthquake? I'm going to say God didn't cause it. This world is broken, all of it. And this world, like you and me and our souls, longs for, cries out towards a day when it's not broken again. It, It longs for and it cries out for a day when it is redeemed. Because it says... The influence of evil in our world affects all things, not just you, not just the animals around us, but the earth that we walk on. And God says, I'm fixing all of it. He says, it's, it's groaning to be what it was made to be. And so we sat there and we, and we talked about it and we talked about this idea that salvation is bigger than just individual souls and it's maybe bigger than just heaven one day. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this about the tension. He's a commentator. He says, we're to live as though we've already experienced the relief of Christ's kingly rule, yet who still long for its completion because we live in in in-between times. We fight, we labor, and sometimes we struggle. It's the already but not yetness of the kingdom of God in a system that's broken. He's saying, might my influence grow? So the kingdom of God is the influence of God. And in our text today, we see two parallel themes in one sense. We see kind of the bigger picture and we see how it's walked out. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done. This idea of kingdom is influence. And this idea of will is what God wants to happen. And sometimes when we talk about the will of God, I I don't know about you, but we've made it so mysterious and so mystical. And I pray every day that God shows me his will. And I just need to know what God's will is for my life because he has one will for my life. And I don't know if that's true. And, And let me tell you, it's not scary. That's really beautiful. And let me tell you why. Again, we're Western individualized people. And so we make things that are all about other people all about us. For example, Jeremiah 29, 11, love that verse. But it says that, you know, I have good things for you, plans to prosper you and grow you. That was not written to you. That was written to Israel a long time ago. And he's saying, I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. Now, God does have good plans for you. Please don't mishear me. But that verse was written to a country and not you individually. But this is what we do is we make all things about us in this country because we can, because we have social media, because everything that we want revolves around our desires and our likes and our wants and the world we want to live in. It's, there's a documentary on uh, this music festival called the Fire Festival. Have you guys have heard about this? It dropped on Netflix and, and Hulu a couple weeks ago. It's fantastic, by the way. So these guys got together and they said, let's do this music festival in the Caribbean. And they shot an amazing video, like an amazing video. And they launched this social media campaign that was off the charts good. And that's all they did. And this documentary documents how much of a disaster, an unmitigated disaster that this festival was. People got to the Caribbean and there was no food, there was no water, there was no electricity, there were no tents, there were no mattresses. It was, there was no way off the island. It was Lord of the Flies for rich young millennials, right? And people loved it. <laughs> Here's the point is there were all these signs all building up to that this probably wasn't a good thing, that this thing was a disaster, but nobody listened because we, we get online and we follow the life that we want and we believe that's our reality, you know? 
instead of looking right in front of us, it's what's happening. Sometimes when we talk about the will of God, we make it so mysterious and so out there and so if I can only get it, grasp it, touch it, that we miss the fact that it's right in front of us and we don't see it all the time. This is what God says about his will in Thessalonians. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, talking to the church, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what the instructions that we gave you were by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here's where it comes in. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. (laughs) Sanctification is the process of you and me looking more like Jesus. Sanctification is the process of letting more of God's influence control more of your life. Sanctification is the process of allowing us to live into the kingdom of God, into all facets of our life. God says, here's my will. My will is not something that you have to go searching for. It's not something that you need to find. It's something you need to follow that you might allow the influence of God to more take hold of all the areas of your life, that you might be sanctified. It's this beautiful picture that God says, I'm giving you my will. And what it does is it leads to freedom. (laughs) Because here's what happens if we see the will of God as one set course of action. There's one set mystical boundaries that I need to pray for and God to reveal for me in dreams or journals or notes and that happens sometimes. Sometimes God has burning bush moments with us. I have a few of those in my life because he's good. But most times in the day-to-day, the will of God is the pursuit of God and allowing the kingdom of God to more influence my every decision. And so what happens is, if we think the will of God is one specific thing instead of the, the mundaneness of the everyday, is we pray and we pray and we pray and we think God is silent. And we pray and we pray and we pray and we ask, why isn't God speaking back to me? I just want to know. I just want to follow his will. And we treat it like something that needs to be found instead of something that needs to be followed. A couple years ago, I gave a sermon on the will of God. Um, We did it all morning long. It's, you know, average at best. You can go listen. And um, we talked about what it was and how do I know God's will and walk through some of this a little bit. And that morning, Pine Cove was here. Once a year, we do camp in the city. And in Camp of the City, we have like 30 college kids that come in here and jump up and down for a week and yell. So it makes us really productive in the staff offices. And, but it's for the glory of God. I work from home. And um, this one Pine Cove girl came up to me. She just graduated from college, A&M, I think. And she stopped me when I was going up to my office. And she said, hey, I, I, just, I just need to tell you something. what's up. She said, uh, hey, what, would you talk to the will of God? It was re- really good for me. And I said, yeah. And she said, I've been... I have these two job offers. I have one in Austin and one in Nashville. And she said, they're both good jobs and I don't know which one to pick and I've just been praying and praying and praying that God would tell me which one to pick and he hasn't and I've been really frustrated and I don't know why. And she said, but I think both could be in the will of God. I think, I think either one is God's will. If we take the kingdom of God, the influence of God into every space we go into, then whether you take this job or that job might not be a a decision of if it's the will of God, it is the will of God, wherever you go to spread the influence of God. And so she said it was just really, really freeing. The whole point of it is the will of God isn't necessarily the difference between what's right and what's wrong, but what's right and what's left as we take God's influence into all the spaces of our world. And so she said, I had this job offer in Nashville and in Austin, and I was just praying the will of God, and it just gave me freedom to just pick one and go there. And I said, that's beautiful. Which one did you pick? And she said, I chose Nashville. I said, you chose wrong. <laughs> she, she looked at me like I just undid all the things that God did. And I said, I'm serious though. Switch that over and then you'll be good. You know, it was this really cool picture of what the will of God is in the world that he lives in. 
So if the kingdom of God is the influence of God, then the will of God, or what God wants, is simply more of his influence in our lives and in our world. David Platt says this about God's will. He's a pastor up north. He says, This is God's will in the world to create, to call, to save, and to bless his people for the spread of his grace and glory among all peoples. This will is not intended to be found. It's intended to be followed. We don't have to wonder about God's will when we've been created to walk in it. Because that's a frustrating question. But, but the Bible paints a different picture. Jesus prays a different picture. He says, I want to pray something. I want you guys to pray this. I want you to pray that God's influence might be known and that because his influence is known, the influence might translate to your day-to-day decisions. That God's influence growing in your life is the will of God for your life, whatever space you might get into, whether you're here on a Sunday morning or at Costco on the Saturday before the Super Bowl, might the influence of God grow and that is the will of God in our world. But here's the problem. Because the last phrase in this, in this verse is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to take some time and, and unpack that phrase a bit because I don't know about you, but if God's kingdom is the ever-growing influence of his presence in our world, and if God's will is that we might be ambassadors for that influence to grow in all facets of our life, I was always taught growing up that heaven was this place we get to go to to finally leave this place that's going to hell in a handbasket, you know? So it's this kind of conflicting ideologies that one is God says, grow my influence, but two is one day, thank God, I get to withdraw my influence from this really wicked place and it's going to burn, you know? It seems to me like they're juxtaposing each other and and I, I don't think how we see heaven is necessarily how the Bible talks about heaven. So for example, I think there's two things that that we get wrong when we talk about heaven. One, I was always told growing up that heaven was a place we'd go and that we were one day going to finally get to heaven and be there for eternity and it was our best good. But here's something the scriptures seem to say a few different times is that we don't end up in heaven. We end up in some version of earth. It says in Peter, in 2 Peter 3, it says, um, essentially, according to his promise, you are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth and with righteousness truly reside. So we're going to do some theology of heaven real quick. Stay with me, I promise it's going somewhere. But throughout the scriptures, the message that I get from the scriptures is that we don't end up in heaven one day, we end up on earth one day. It's new, and it's good, and it's better, but we end up on earth, not in heaven. And when you think about it, I've always been told that one day I get to be in heaven forever and ever and ever. But if you stop, that ignores the fact that you and I were made for earth. We're made for it. We have fingers and toes and lungs and mouths and noses. And when God created the earth, he said, it's good. And we were created to exist on earth. He says, you were made to live here. And he says, one day you will end up on a new version of it, but you will end up on earth, not in heaven forever and ever and ever, because I was always told that one day we would get rid of this place and never come back. But God seems to say that I value what I created, and I created you for a purpose, which is to reside on earth. And there's going to be a new version of that. The, the second thing I've always heard is that earth will be no more, that earth will burn up. <laughs> I had a, uh, a guy come into a chapel one time I went to in college, and it's the first time I'd ever heard this line of thinking. And he said, you know, if we believe that the earth is going to be no more, then do we believe that what God created in the first place was good at all? And it was, he, he, he drew out this theory that the earth in and of itself is a good thing, but it's influenced by sin. And, and what I thought was really interesting is when you look at it, some of our eschatology, what we believe about the end times, is heavily influenced by things not of the Bible, like 
Plato, for example. It's heavily influenced by most, a lot of the church fathers. And what we see when we look at Platonian thought is we see that this idea of forms and shadows shapes how we see the earth one day. And what I mean by that is his whole thing was everything physical is bad, everything spiritual is good. He said the, the best good is that we leave our bodies and we reside one day outside of the physical because the physical holds us back, but the spiritual is our best good. But throughout the Bible, God seems to value the physical that he made. He says we're going to get bodies again. He says you're going to end up on a new earth. And so we, we have this idea that maybe God's not going to completely destroy the earth, but he's going to do what he does with us, which is redeem it. In 2 Peter 3, right before the verse we just read, it talks about this. It says in verse 10, if you want to get there, we're going to be there for a bit. It says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When it comes, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. That, that word celestial bodies, some of your translations say elements. Uh, what most commentators agree upon is it really means demonic forces, celestial bodies. You see it in Galatians 4 and a couple other places. It means the evil influences in the world, essentially. The demonic influences in our world. The influence of evil that runs it now that we saw in Ephesians 2. It says that they will melt away in a blaze. And the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. And that word laid bare there means a couple different things. If you have the NIV, it's laid bare. If you have uh, the ESV, I think it says um, that it will be exposed. And the idea there is not that it's completely gone. The picture he paints in that whole text in that passage is that God is going to refine the earth with fire. It's the, the idea of, of the purification process of gold. Things get really hot and the bad things melt away. And what it does is when you look at the text like that, what the Bible says is it doesn't necessarily destroy the physical. It says, I am doing something to make it better again. It's the same thing God did with Noah. If you look at the context of the scriptures, he says in verse six and seven above, he says, hey, he did it before with Noah. This is what it says, Second Peter three, six and seven. Through these things, the world, um, the world existing at the time was destroyed when it was deluged with water. But the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire by being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what he's doing in that context of Second Peter is what he's saying is I recognize there's evil in the world and one time, a long time ago, I got rid of it because I flooded the world and one day I'm going to come back. My influence is going to be fully felt because I'm going to melt away the impurities, the evilness in the good world that I created. It's an entirely different message than one that says the world's going to go away and never come back. And I think that matters. There's a commentator, he wrote a book called Heaven is a Place on Earth, and he said, um, he said, uh, much like gold passing through a smelting furnace, the good that we do will be purified, while well, less noble efforts will slough off. Read this way, Peter's vision of a coming configuration seems to be of a purging rather than an annihilating fire. If you really think about how God's work, how God always works, it just makes sense that he redeems and doesn't run away from evil. It says new earth in one other place too. It says in Revelation 21.1, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and for the first time, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And again, that word passed away, we can look at it and say it means that it's gone for good, but that's not necessarily the context. 
that's being written here. We see that same word again in 2 Corinthians, one of our favorite verses, when it says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, and everything old has passed away, and everything new has be- and everything has been made new. Same with us. <laughs> the picture being painted is that God doesn't start from scratch. He renews and he rebuilds the things that are already present because God is a God of restoration and rejuvenation. He's saying, I'm going to do with this earth what I've done with you guys. I'm going to bring about wholeness where there was brokenness. One commentator says this, in both cases, the new person in Christ and the new heaven and new earth, the word new has a sense of radical renewal, not replacement. It's why when it says in Romans 8, for creation eagerly awaits, and it says that creation itself will be set free from bondage and to decay, what it means is that God is going to redeem the world around us along with us. That's a beautiful picture of a God that steps into dark places and doesn't run away from them. And what that does for you and me, again, this is a big abstract concept, but what that does for my everyday is it changes the way that I live in this world. It does. Because our view of the future in heaven will change how we live now on earth. I promise. So I remember the first time I, I saw the movie The Sixth Sense. I don't know if you've seen that movie before. I'm going to blow the ending for you. It's been a decade. You'll be just fine. And if you don't know it, it's a Bruce Willis movie. And it's that creepy little kid that, that, that whispers, I see dead people. You know? And made it famous. And the whole movie is about this kid that sees dead people and Bruce Willis is his counselor. And so watch this movie, loving this movie. I'm about, oh, 10 minutes from the end of this movie and my cousin walks in the room and he says, have you found out he's dead yet? And I said, what's wrong with you as a person? And he laughed, right? <laughs> the influence of evil in our world abounds, everybody. Um, but really, I'll tell you what, man, after I found that out, it changed how I watched the movie in the present. What we think about how this world ends and what you think about what heaven looks like will impact how you live in this earth now. And so what he's saying is that I am a God who wants heaven to come to earth. And what that means is that he created this place and he loves it. (laughs) That, That maybe he's not getting rid of it completely, but he's restoring it like he's restored us. What that means for me is that my job is to spread his influence so that people might see that God is redeeming the world around me. What that means is it matters how I live in the day-to-day because God's not picking me up out of here forever and just getting rid of it. And when you think about it, that's not the character of God anyway. It's not what he does. My favorite part of this verse is when it says, thy kingdom come, because I think it shows kind of a theology of who God is. What it shows when it says, thy kingdom come, is it paints a picture of a God who meets us in the middle of darkness. And when we see heaven as a place that we go to to leave this place, that we run away from darkness and not redeem darkness, it seems to be the opposite of the character of God throughout all of Scripture. We see it from the very beginning that God comes, he doesn't run from calamity. That God comes and redeems, he doesn't run from darkness. The first time sin entered the world, we see in the garden in Genesis 3, 8, Adam and Eve hid from God in the morning because with sin comes shame. But God didn't say, it's bad, I'm going the other way. God said he went and found and the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? Throughout the scripture, we see a theology of a God who pursues and brings life out of death and doesn't run away from it because he's bigger than the influence of evil. We see it in the beginning when he walked with Adam and Eve. We see it 
when he reached out to Noah before the rain came. We see it when he spoke to Moses to deliver his people from slavery. We see it when he used the prophets in the Old Testament to call back a rebellious people. We see it when Jesus, the light of the world, was sent into the darkness of the world to show people there's a better way. We see it when Jesus said parable after parable of, I will run after the one lost sheep that doesn't know he's lost. We see it when he sat with the church and said, you will go into the world, and if you don't want to, I'm going to make you because there are people that need to hear that I'm redeeming all the spaces around you and my influence is not shrinking, but it's growing. He says again and again in the scripture, I'm a God who pursues and brings life out of death. Join me in my efforts. And if we see heaven as a place that we get to escape this reality from, then we don't try and redeem the reality in front of us. And Jesus says, that's not how I work. That's not how he's worked in me. Hopefully that's not how he treats you. And so what that means for us, what that matters to me is this this paints a picture of a God who is working in our midst to bring about restoration and redemption. We follow a God who comes to us. It says in Matthew 16, I love this, it says, he's talking to Peter, and he says, you, Peter, are gonna build my churches on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. (laughs) If we think that our end goal is to escape this place, then we're on defense, but God seems to paint the picture that he's on offense all the time. God seems to paint the picture that he's not waiting until the influence of sin runs its course, but God is on offense actively restoring and redeeming his fallen creation that he said was good in the first place. I think for far too long as a church, maybe overall we've been waiting for God to pull us out when God says, step into and spread my influence in the world around you. So when Jesus says, pray like this, what he's saying is be a people Be a people that pray in a way that know that they're influenced by God. They're influencing their world for God so the world knows that God isn't done redeeming and restoring. The way we see heaven matters because if we see heaven as ultimately God redeeming and restoring the earth that we're in, if we see see heaven as a God who comes out, comes into our spaces and brings light out of darkness, what we see is a God that says, I'm not leaving yet, I'm just getting started. For far too long, I thought God was leaving this place one day. And that changes how I live in my world. It changes what I'm called into. It, it, it changes what, how I pray. So instead of praying, God, give me the strength to make it to the end or give me the strength to get to one day when you pull me out of here, I'm, God, give me opportunities for your influence to spread in my life, in my family, in my work, in my church, in my community. God says, join me because my kingdom has come and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. It's a call to us as Christians to join in what God is doing. And it's a reminder that God isn't playing defense, but he's on offense, actively pursuing darkness and saying, I will bring light to those spaces. Jesus says, pray this way. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for who you are and most importantly, what you're doing in our world that, that it's not us looking at it one day saying you're gonna leave this place, but you, like you do all things, redeem and restore the bad to the good because you're bigger than it. God, I pray that um, as we read through this text and we're reminded that we can talk to you in confidence as a father and not make you comment, I, I pray that we remember that you're active in our world, that you're just getting started, that you're not gonna one day leave us. God, I pray that... Um, as we think about how you taught us to pray and we think about these concepts of of kingdom and will and heaven on earth, I pray that it inspires us to live out your influence in a place that desperately needs it so that people might see that we have hope. 
that people might see a God that cares, that's active, that pursues, and that redeems. In the middle of our darkest spaces, he says, it's not bigger than my ability to repair it. It's the message of the gospel. It's what I need to hear and what I need to show people more of. So God, may your influence grow in my life and in this church and in our community so that people see that you're active and that you're just getting started. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.